Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Laundry. Welcome back to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I am your MC today. Uh, I'm just doing the intro today. I had some technical difficulties during the interview, so Nick and Jackson kind of took that away. I kind of got a half question off, but that was about it. Today, we are venturing into not the triathlon world, but another world. While triathlon was kind of growing with Mark Allen, Dave Scott, there was this parallel uh, world of sports, of endurance sports growing and really gaining a foothold in North America, and that is, well, ultra running. And today we talked to a real pioneer in the ultra running community, and that's Bryce Thatcher. For those of you who don't know, he held one of the most coveted FKTs. So FKT, for those triathletes out there, is fastest known times. So he had one of the most coveted FKTs kind of in North America, and that was the Grand Teton Owen Spalding route. He held that from 1983 until 2012. So almost 30 years, which is amazing. And today we kind of dive deep into his life as an ultra runner and how he got started with the whole ultra running community. We do dive into a bit of entrepreneurial discussions as as we go into how he founded his business, you know, starting a business in his one bedroom apartment while he was studying in university, kind of taking a different route than perhaps a lot of students and getting a job and how that allowed him to pursue his dreams in, in ultra running and how he really found his passion. And he, he founded this company that he ended up selling and he started a new one uh, called Ultraspire. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It is one of Nick, our host, Nick Chase's sponsors, uh, who, when he did his ultra, uh, he was wearing Ultraspire hydration system and he touches upon that. So without further ado, let's roll into the interview. All right, so we have a fantastic guest today, someone I've wanted to kind of bring on for a while now just because I've dabbled in the ultra scene, but we have Bryce Thatcher, the legend within the ultra marathon world and also within, uh, would you call it canyoneering or climbing, trekking, mountain running? What would you call it, Bryce? It's probably mountain running is what I would call it. Because you're, I mean, I know you're going to elaborate on all this, but you basically were climbing mountains and then how did that transition into running mountains? Yeah. So I, I, I grew up in, in Idaho on the Idaho side of the Tetons and I was a boy scout when I was younger and just really enjoyed hiking. Um, but I re really just was drawn to the higher mountains, particularly the Tetons when I was younger. And I realized that it was really fascinating for me to, to go on these hikes. And then my father, who um, supported me in all my endeavors my, my whole life, but he, he would always do what we would call, uh, what he called double time, where he would say, okay, we have this four mile section of trail. Let's see if we can, you know, do it in an hour. And I'd say, okay, that's awesome. And so he would, he would go out and we would count steps. We'd like run 20 steps, walk 20 steps. And, and then we would time ourselves um, 
doing sections of trail. And, and that's kind of what really got me intrigued by moving fast in the mountains was, was just saying, hey, you know, if, if you can run a little bit, then you're going to be able to cover a section of trail. And this would have been in the uh, late, early to late 70s probably is when I was doing a lot of this. And then I, I became actually got into rock climbing pretty heavily. And I had a, a rock climbing friend who, um, you know, we would go out and we'd do technical climbing and spent a lot of time in the Tetons doing a lot of the higher peaks and the technical rock climbing routes. But he was, he was older than me. And because of that, he had a full-time job and I was a younger kid. And, and so he would have to work during the day and I still wanted to rock climb. So I started running into the mountains and then doing the technical routes, kind of easier technical routes. And I would do those free solo without a rope and stuff. And then I just started clocking those for time. And that's really kind of how I got started in a nutshell into what I call mountain running. It's kind of a combination of trail running um, and rock climbing combined in, in, into one. And I started just timing myself just to try to come up with faster, faster times on kind of self-induced adventures is what they were. I would see a peak and then say, hey, that looks really cool. I would like to run up that. And, and you would run to a certain point and then you'd get to the technical rocks and, and you would have to climb and climb as fast as you can, but still try to be safe. And then you would, then you would come off the mountain as well. And, and that's when, you know, before even it was known, it was talked about as fastest known times or um, it was just, it was just more personal, you know, goals and personal improvement to try to get faster myself. That's incredible that you were able wow. to just <laughs> invent this stuff, right, Jackson? Like, imagine being like, well, I decided yeah, I wanted really. to go swim across, this, swim across this lake for my fastest known time and see if anyone else is doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you basically started racing yourself in a sense, which is so cool because that transfers over to so many different types of endurance sport where that's what everyone's doing. They're racing themselves. And back then, yeah, there's no recorded, like you kind of – started it so sounds like into the fastest known times like did you right i yeah i um uh, you know being in the tetons i had a an old lee ortenberger he was an author and he wrote the climber's guide to the, the teton range and i had this guidebook and i would just write in the margins every single time i summited the peak but then i started writing my times okay this time i was you know an hour and 38 minutes and this time i was you know two hours and 25 minutes and, and it just kind of became my um, template for personal improvement and and I never really looked at it from a competitive standpoint um, it was more just I loved being out in the mountains I loved um, being able to move quickly in the mountains and I loved being able to you know kind of established a, a personal test um, on known routes and being able to use that as my test for fitness to see okay if I'm doing this peak can I be faster on this peak and that's that just really intrigued me, you know, all along. So well, 1979, that was when you were unable to, I guess that was years when you kind of maybe landed upon the fact that you want to go fast. You've got all this gear you've got to take on these ascents, but how do you carry it? Like what was your, yeah, that's, ex that's a kind of exactly what happened. And I, um, you know, I, 
I wanted to go as fast as I could. I had this old Camp Trails backpack and it was a very simple orange uh, top loading backpack. And I would put, you know, like a bottle of apple juice in it. And then I'd put a jacket and I'd put maybe a little bit of food or something in it. And then I would just throw it on my pack. And, and, and then I had, because I was doing a lot of rock climbing, um, I, I didn't want to scratch my watch. And so I, I kind of modified a, just a standard Timex chronograph and made it so it could hang around my neck. And then I would put, tuck it down my shirt and then I would just push start when I would go. And then I would push stop when I was at the summit and then I would push stop again at the end. Um, but anyway, when, when this was happening, I was really annoyed by every single time I would have to take off my backpack and, and get fluids and nutrition out of it and then and then put it back on again and go and and so I, I grew up in a kind of a conservative religious home where on Sundays um, we, we were not going outside and playing basketball and doing things like that you know we, we'd go to church and then after church I would be at home and and so I would off as a little kid I was often bored and so my mom just turned me on to sewing and she just said, okay, here's some scrap fabrics and, you know, just go ahead and make what you want. And, and so it was, it was during this period of time that I was, um, that I was, you know, trying to set these records on the mountains and they were at this point, just all personal records. I was just trying to set, uh, you know, now I'm calling them FK me's, but it's just my <laughs> fastest known me times. Um, but anyway, I, I just call them my personal records, but, but I, I was sitting at home one Sunday and I just says, there's gotta be a better way. I've got to be able to get faster. And so I just took some um, flip top bicycle, specialized bicycle water bottles and and i says okay and then i took an old pair of levi's and then i cut up you know some levi's and and i sat down and i sewed a um a pack that carried two specialized water bottles on a waist belt and then um and then just had a simple waist belt and a simple pocket in the center that would give me two bottles of water and some energy foods and that's when i first made my my first pack and i and i started using that on some of my my um, you know adventures, and then it was a little bit later. Um, it would have been a little bit later. Well, um, I, I guess I can fast forward to 1981. Um, I was this was kind of a pivotal point where I was with my same friend, my climbing friend, and we were in the city of Rocks, Idaho, one time, and we um, were talking about the fastest known time or at the time they just called it the world record for the speed ascent descent of the Grand Teton in Wyoming. And, and I, and I was talking to him about this in 1981 and I, I just said, really? And how fast did they do it? And who holds the record? And, and he, uh, he said, well, it's this guy and, and his name is, is Jock Glidden and he, he's a climbing ranger over in Jackson hole. And, and he, you know, he climbs the mountain like every week and he his he has the fastest time, four hours and eleven minutes. And I says, Wow, that's really cool. I'd love to do that. And and I was I was eighteen at the time and it just so happened I was at the City of Rocks with my friend in Idaho with my friend Kim climbing, and we happened upon the tent of uh Jock Glidden. He happened to be there and 
and my friend Kim was always so supportive of me and, and, and he, um, he, he went to Jock and he said, Hey Jock. And he pointed to me and I'm just this really skinny young kid. And he says, Bryce is going to break your record on the Grand Teton. And I'm like, like, Oh, wow. And, and, um, and, and, and Jock just looked at me, you know, this scrawny little kid and he just says, good luck kid. And I says, Oh, thanks. You know, and, and it was, it was later that summer that I went for it. And, and I, um, took his record from four hours and 11 minutes. And I, 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 brought it down to three hours and 47 minutes round trip and if you to understand a little bit about what this is it's you start at uh, Jenny Lake Lupin Meadows and you go up the Garnet Canyon Trail it's a series of switchbacks for the first um, six or seven miles to a place called the Saddle in between the middle and the Grand Teton and then and then the last um a mile or so to the summit is just rocks and boulders and then the last 700 feet being technical climbing where most people you know use ropes um to to climb that and so um i i was able to take the record i ran um to the top and back down again in three hours and 47 minutes and you know i was pretty excited about it my friend kim was super excited about it and that's kind of what launched me into Hey, this is this is kind of cool, you know. I I was able to do that and and established, you know. Really, for me, it was a personal record, but that that's what really brought me to it. Um, you know, I, I guess realizing that there's records being set and established, and it really gave me a passion for for setting, you know, FKTs. But kind of a side note, um, the um, the the whole idea of a fastest known time. Um, was really coined by a friend of mine um, named Jim Knight, or fast packing in general. And that's where you're traveling a lot of distance um, and, and in, a, in a short period of time. And, and it was in 1987, um, so this leaped forward a little bit. Um, he wanted to run the Wind River Range um, going from Big Sandy up to Green River Lakes um, we did two separate trails, but it was about a, around 100 miles, maybe 110 miles, depending on which which map you look at. But he wanted to pull it off, you know, in a fast packing manner. And and the whole theory behind it was, um, so was to be able to go lighter, and by being able to go lighter, you can travel further. And so that was another one that we pulled off. Um, most people do it in three or four days. Um, we pulled that off 38 hours, including sleeping, carrying our own sleeping bag, carrying a stove, carrying a tent, um, and, you know, just totally cross country carrying everything with us. And that was in 1987. And, and he wrote an article for Ultra Running Magazine at the time. And that's when they, the, the term fast packing, which kind of really became um, popular, um, was first used, um, where it's just backpack and then adding the word fast to it so that's when that first came out too and we built you know at, at the time I'd started my first company which is a whole nother story I guess I can back up a little bit and if I'm rambling too much just just go ahead and ask questions but so in 1981 I'll back up I did set the record on on the Grand Teton and then um, in the meantime um, I, I um, left and served a mission um, for the LDS church for two years, came back in 1983. And it was about, it was August 16th, 1983. 
my same friend that's been one of my best friends my whole life, he called me, Kim Miller is his name, and he just said, Bryce, your record on the grand's been broken. I'm like, what? And he says, yeah, your record on the brand is, grand has been broken, and you've got to go back. And I'm like, all right. And so this, there was a guy named Creighton King, a great mountain runner um, that had won Pikes Peak a few times and won the Desert Music Marathon um, before, just a really a good mountain runner. He had taken my record at three hours and 47 minutes, and he moved it down to three hours uh, and 30 minutes. And so he, he took pretty good time off of it. And so that was 1983. My friend Kim says, you got to come back. And so it was 10 days after that. So it was August 26, 1983, that I went back. Um, I had been living in Colorado at the time. I was running three 14,000 foot peaks a week um, and just very, very fit. I was actually training to try to win the Pikes Peak Marathon. But I just says, okay, the, the record on the Grand is more important to me than that because, you know, it's something that I really cherish, the mountains. And so I went back, and it was August 26th that I reestablished my record. So he held it for 10 days. Um, I came back and um, ran to the summit, which if to look at it, it's almost 7,000 feet of vertical over eight miles and some people call it nine miles, eight or nine miles um, to the summit. So you're gaining a thousand feet a mile with the last 700 feet being technical rock climbing. So I was able to run from the parking lot to the top of the mountain, um, 7,000 feet vertical in an hour and 53 minutes. Um, and oh, to wow. give a little bit of perspective of that, I don't know if any of you have ever climbed the Grand Teton, but the last 700 feet that's technical climbing, a lot of people will take almost a half a day because they rope up on that. And that last 700 feet took me 11 minutes to, to run to the, to the top of the mountain. And then I turned around. My goal was ultimately, I really wanted to break three hours, but I ran off the top. Holy cow. Um, lost the, lost the um, 7,000 feet vertical. And I ran from the, the summit back down to the car in an hour and 13 minutes, including down climbing the whole route. Um, and so that record um, was, it was the type of thing where, you know, you asked me about, you know, your lifetime performance. That was kind of it. I had some friends that were watching me along the way and, and they, they, they saw me come off of this glacier off of the saddle. And I, there was a little bit of snow and I was pretty good skier. But in essence, I skied down the glacier with my running shoes on and I, I was in a, a cotton t-shirt I was in a oh cotton t-shirt and um, some old um, running shorts and a pair of Brooks Vantage running shoes, just a pair of road running shoes. You know, that's all there was at the time, just road <laughs> running oh shoes. And, and so I skied down this glacier. It was like a half a mile long. And it just took me a couple of minutes to do it. And, the, and my friends thought I was falling. I'm like, no, I'm not falling. I was just kind of skiing on my running shoes, you know. And so I, I came off the mountain. Um, and that, that in and of itself, um, that record stood for almost 29 years. Wow. And it was, it was attempted uh, at least once a year, sometimes multiple times a year, especially as, as you know, FKTs became more and more popular it was um, attempted a lot more. 
a lot of people, a lot of people in the running community from Luke Nelson to Anton Kapichka, you know, they, they all went after it multiple times. Um, Ricky Gates, you know, a lot of them were, were trying to get the record on the grand and, and it was finally Killian. You guys have all heard of Killian before. Oh yeah. That, oh yeah. That, yeah. That, that took it down. But, but it was a very controversial thing with Killian because he's very European. He's a wonderful guy. I've met him a few times and, and he and I, you know, I can't call him one of my good friends, but he's super nice. Um, and it, him being in European style, it was a little bit controversial because one of the things behind an FKT is it's kind of etiquette to make sure that you do it in the same manner and the same style as all your predecessors before you. And if you don't do it, then it's kind of almost considered a separate record. And so it was a little controversial with Killian. I totally gave him credit for it and wrote him a nice note and stuff, but um, because he, he didn't take the same route on the way up or the way down. He had researched it and he ended up cutting a lot of the switchbacks instead of running the switchbacks. He just went straight over the side of the mountain. And so, with that, um, it was just shortly thereafter, a guy named Andy Anderson, um, who is a climbing ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park, he went in, followed the, followed the trail the whole way, did it in the same style as I did it, you know, and so he's the current record holder on it. But, but ultimately what that did is um, it really kind of helped establish, you know, what I loved and it kind of launched me into my career as well too. I, uh, you know, I, I had built these prototype packs for myself. I was using these to set these, these fastest known times for me. Um, and then I was, went to college. And when I was in college, I was a cross country ski racer and uh, also a runner. And I, um, was just a little frustrated because I thought I was, I was in pre-med. Um, and I thought, okay, I want to be a sports doctor. That'd be really cool. And, um, and then I thought, well, my parents are giving me $400 a month, you know, to live on. And I don't want to get any money from anybody. And I, I, I'm just, one day I had a thought, I just said, kids start businesses all the time. Why don't you just start a business? And I'm like, you know, I'm thinking about it. And so I wrote up this business plan and I thought, well, I can sew, I can make all kinds of things. I can make backpacks and all kinds of things. And so I um, went and, and I, I created a business plan and my business plan was single paged and it said, I want to start a sewing company and I want to make, and I had everything from ski bags to duffel bags to cosmetic bags to almost everything that I had sewn prototypes of over the years for myself. And then also on my list was running fanny packs and running backpacks. And so I gave this list to my dad and I just said, Hey dad, I want to start a business. And, and he was always so supportive of me. And so I asked him for a loan um, for a thousand dollars and, and I gave it to him and he, he said, okay. And he wrote out a check and gave it to me. And I turned around and I drove, drove to Salt Lake city, um, bought a sewing machine for $960, a commercial <laughs> sewing machine, which I'd never sewn on one before. And then I bought $40 worth of fabric. And then I moved it into my one bedroom apartment. And then I started making backpacks as a college student. 
Um, that is incredible. And, and Rice, real know, fast though, before we yeah, get too so, far into Ultra Aspire, I wanted to ask about your FKT in specifically that last 11 minute section. Is that a free solo section for you? And is that why it's so slow for everybody else? Yes, that's exactly right. And that's a really good question. If you know the climbing scale at all, technical climbing, when you do it free, it, it, they call it a decimal system. Um, and it's yes. 5.1, 5.2, 5.3, and so forth. And it, I think it's up to 5.15 now um, in difficulty. So the actual route, it's called the Owen Spalding route, and it is considered a 5.4. Um, so it's not hard. Most people that are fit and, and so forth would have no, no problem just going out and climbing it. The problem is, is that the exposure is over the top. There's sections where there's over 2,000 feet of exposure. So if you fall, you're dead. You know, there's yeah. just no way around it. And when you're yeah. dealing with a, a mountain situation um, where there's, there's sometimes ice and loose rock and um, dirt and stuff like that, it's just kind of a little sketchy. And I've taken, you know, now I take my kids up there and we use ropes on it and we rappel down and stuff like that. And, and I even look at it now and think, wow, that's crazy. But it was, it's technical climbing. And that is why most people take so long is because they rope up basically the rest of the way to the summit. It's the last 700 feet to the top is, is what they do. So, so is that the same system? Um, like if someone just literally goes down to their climbing gym um, and it's, it's called a, a 5.4, is that the same system, even though it's not actually like natural rock? Yes, it's exactly the same system. So like if you go to a climbing gym to train or just to, like a lot of people are just using climbing gyms because I really think that rock climbing in general is the best over body workout, you know, and it's really fun. And yeah. so just because it's flexibility and strength and core strength and shoulder strength and, you know, just you're, you're, it's just really good. So a climbing gym, they use the same um, decimal system um, to, to rate the climbs in the climbing yeah. gym. So, yeah. and, so and they're, they're going to like you said, like, I don't know, like, I can just say I've been climbing to those gyms, like maybe once every couple of years, my whole life just for fun. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, like most people could climb a 5.4, no problem, but yeah. I wouldn't want to do it without a rope in case you slip or something. Yeah. Without right. a rope. <laughs> and then, and then you add 2000 feet of just pure air below it. And it's, yeah. it's pretty scary. And it's a little bit of a route finding too. You know, I knew the route pretty well and you kind of zigzag around to find the best way up. Um, and so that's, that is why, you know, most people take so long. And I think that the difference between myself and um, Creighton King, for example, the guy that did it for uh, three, three thirty, um, is I was a lot faster on the mountains. He's a faster runner than me. But when it came to when I, when we got on the rocks and we got jumping over boulders and hopping and stuff like that, I was a lot faster than him. Killian, though, on the other hand, is is good at all. You know, he's good at both. He can climb fast and he can run fast too. So, so your lifestyle yeah. of kind of like running up fourteen thousand feet really played a big part in you being incredibly fit at those high elevations yeah and you're almost anaerobic and those same friends that saw me when i was coming off the glacier they said when i came by them um they said that i was blue you know the orbitals around my eyes were just completely blue from being hypoxic you know you're just no kidding you almost when you get to high altitude like that you're so 
um, you're just, you're lacking so much oxygen that I think you're pretty much anaerobic. You know, it's just, um, you're, you're going so hard. And I think my VO2 max was super high. Um, I was very lightweight. Um, I spent a lot of time and, you know, from a training standpoint, it's really kind of a specific training. I did a lot of um, one-legged hops, one-legged jump rope. I could jump rope for, you know, 30 minutes on one leg and then go 30 minutes on the other leg. And, and that just wow. kind of created pistons out of the legs so that you could just kind of propel yourself up the hill. Um, so your lower, lower and, leg elasticity and, was just they, on point. Yes. Yeah. And my calves, I've got this genetic thing with my calves. My, when, if, if you ever go running with me, you'll see, you look from behind and my calves like go all the way to my ankle bones. <laughs> and so it's oh, just that's like, lucky. I think that that might, yeah, that's lucky. I think it's just like, they're, they're just really long. And then I've also been um, incredibly blessed. And it's probably because I've been running mountains since I was like seven years old. And I've never, you know, I've never sprained an ankle my entire life. And I just have these rubber ankles that I can, I can bounce. Even now I'm 58 years old now and I can bounce my ankle off a rock and it just bounces back up and I just keep running, you know, and it's just, and, and so, and then my flexibility, a, a technique thing, you know, I could talk for hours about technique for uphill running and stuff, but um, uh, my calves are so flexible that even, even if I'm at like a 30% grade running uphill, my, my heels can still hit the ground. And so I do a toe heel up. And, and, and so because of that, you have this momentary time where your, your calves completely relax when they transition from going down to going up. And so I, I allow my calves to go down and then relax and then you flex and you're able to propel yourself up rather than stopping midstream because of inflexibility and having to go to the point of complete flexion according to your flexibility and then, and then try to go up. I, I, I'm able to, and except for, you know, really, really steep stuff, then, then you're kind of just on your toes. But for just most trail running up to 30% grade, my heels, you know, actually can hit the ground and I can wow. propel up. That means you can Boy. recruit all that posterior chain much more efficiently than the rest of us. Right, right. And I think that's even now I'm, you know, I'm, I, I tell my wife, she, she can totally outrun me on the flats. It's just like we get out of the car for our morning runs and she's gone like a bolt of lightning. But then after we've gotten about five or six miles into it and then we get some hills and then we get some steep hills, then I can find the catcher on the hills, you know, <laughs> it's just like, okay, I could still run hills. So yeah. I, I, I like hills. So, so Nick, Nick did his uh, ultra. You probably heard and saw yeah, about that. I, that. And he was I saying, those mountains. yeah, he was saying like, cause he's kind of, you know, opposite. He didn't, um in a sense he didn't start with mountains he started with probably mostly everything flat triathlon and strength and then he found he's got all kinds of strength but um and nick you can comment on this but the downhill running and some of the technical aspects were a little tougher um what would nick what would can you elaborate on that and then just maybe go into like how can someone like a triathlete try to develop those skills without you know getting injured and stuff yeah, for triathletes looking to get into some mountain type running, it's it's bit of a you have to hit that. I'd say the 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 I'm trying not to swear the uh, the forget about it button. Just because at a certain <laughs> point you're you're gonna want to protect yourself because the impact on your quads is just ex existential as you run downhill and you use your legs as brakes. So there's a fine line between letting gravity do its thing and using your legs as springs 
And then also the other side of that is just trying to slow down because you're scared and just looking for good placement. And Bryce, you know, more than any of us here that eventually you yeah. just, you develop like a, a periphery for where your foot needs to be. And you're not looking straight down at the trail. You're looking, you're looking a couple hundred feet down the trail, maybe a couple of glances here and there, but your yeah. eyes are everywhere. Yeah, I think that that's really, really perceptive. And a couple of things, you know, I just talking about the transition. Um, first of all, to your point of looking down the trail and, and running downhill, I always teach people whenever I take them with me, you have to keep soft knees, you know, so you have to make sure that it's your muscles that are taking the brunt of the force, not your joints. I've never had knee injuries, never had ankle injuries. Um, and so, and then the, a transition going from triathlon to more of a mountain style running or even ultra running. Cause I think there's a difference between ultra running in general um, and ultra trail running obviously, but then mountain running, but for, for ultra running and trail running, you have to develop the, the stabilizing muscles around your legs. So your hips, your knees, your, and your, your shin muscles, your anterior tibialis, um, your stabilizing muscles in the sides. And so somebody that's relatively fit as a triathlete, um, if they just jump right off into mountain running, they're going to have the motor. And I've also found that there's a really good correlation between biking uphill and running uphill because you're developing the quad strength. The thing where you're going to suffer is on the deceleration muscles and then the stabilizing muscles around the hip and the core and the sides of the knees and stuff like that. That's where you could get injured. Um, you know, transitioning and it's going to be hard because you do have such a motor. Like when I would transition from cross country ski racing to um, trail running in the summer, um, it, I, I, my motor was always really, really, really strong, but I didn't have the, I wasn't used to the pounding. And I, and so my bones always ached, you know, almost stress fracture type things because your motor's so strong. And so I think triathletes may have some of the same issues, even though they do spend some time running on the roads, but because you're doing the three disciplines with swimming is one of the best disciplines of all for cardio next that and cross country skiing are the top last, last I studied, but, um, because your motor's so strong, you could, you know, overdo it fairly quickly you know, getting into the, getting into the mountains and, and then you could have some structural, you know, damage to things. But to your point of glancing, you know, people ask me, how could I run downhill so fast? And you have to gaze in the distance. For me, it was about 20 feet ahead. You kind of have your peripheral vision on the top that kind of knows your, your, where exactly where you are. My actual focus is about 20 feet ahead. And then in my bottom peripheral vision, I would memorize the rocks and the stumps and, the, and everything that I was going to hit with my feet and always looking 20 feet ahead. And like when I came off the Grand Teton, I was taking just giant leaps and the rocks were coming down as fast as I was coming down. Uh, and, and when you're moving that fast, you can't look right at your feet because as soon as you start looking right at your feet, you fall down because you just, you're, you're going too fast. Well, if you look so anywhere. It, there is quite a transition <laughs> doing that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, that's, there's a lot to the transitioning, but the good thing about triathletes and I've done one triathlon in my life and actually I really liked it, but I'm such a poor swimmer. I was the last one out of the water, really strong on the bike. And then I caught some people on the run, but I had a lot of fun. <laughs> so, oh, they're fun for but, sure. Um, 
Yeah, so triathletes have such good motors though, and they're generally, um, and, and that's why I think mountain running in general, you know, they've got such good upper body strength too. It's kind of a natural transition um, because you do need your upper body. You know, I find that I use, especially on technical terrain, I use my arms a lot for balance. Um, and, and it's just, you know, it's, uh, they act almost like pendulums left and right and up and down and sideways to kind of keep you in balance when you're doing things. Um, and so triathletes would be, a, you know, would be a real natural for them to transition to it. So I, I kind of want to go into the gear aspect of it here. I know you touched upon kind of the start of, of your ultra running career and how you started right. hearing when, when people think of mountaineering, I'm sure they think of the big backpack with the ropes and the tent and everything. And, right. And then you're, you're sewing these little packs for, for bottles yeah. and stuff. So, yeah. and I feel like all trainings really move towards this like minimalist approach and bring like, yeah. as little as it's, possible. It, yeah. It's, it's kind of, um, so to, to back up to, to me, I, I, um, I was in college. I was cross country ski racing I was um, in pre-med. I thought I need to start a business. So I started it in my apartment. My first company I started was a company called Ultimate Direction. Um, and that was kind of the original um, hydration pack company. It was started before Camelback or any others. Um, and it was really developed for the emerging market of going light and fast. And so just being able to carry exactly what you need and then by carrying exactly what you need, which obviously my goal was always um, to make sure that you have everything at your fingertips so that you get food and fluids at your fingertips on the go without having to stop, without having to slow down so that you can perform to the best of your ability. And, and for me, it was always just, you know, for, for personal improvement, I, I, I've done some racing, but not tons of it um because i prefer i like being alone you know out in the mountains and to me it's more of a spiritual thing than anything and so or, I, or i'll go with my wife or my kids or and i do race some it's not that i don't enjoy it i do enjoy it um because i, I like the um the people um but from a gear standpoint that's what we started. We started with just a basic um, water bottle packs for cross country ski racing. It was a single water bottle on a belt and um, it would keep the water insulated and keep it from freezing. And you could get water on the go to, to ski a marathon or in college, we raced 15 kilometers. Um, and so we, that's when we got started and, and how it transitioned beyond that um, and how the market emerged was as events got longer, and as the idea of self-supported versus, you know, race-supported, um, in the early days, in, for example, a 100-mile race in the early days, this would have been 1987, 1988, you know, the Wasatch 100, Western States 100, and things like that. Aid stations were like 15 or 20 miles apart. And it was just like, that's just how they did them. People would go out, you would, you would say, okay, what do I need to carry to get from point A to point B? And so our pack started to become a little bit bigger to carry um, more food, more water. And that's when we first came out with hydration bladders was because we needed to get two to three, four hours. And it's hard to carry five or six, you know, bicycle bottles, especially in the heat to get that far between the aid stations. And so that's when we started developing bladders, developing packs, 
we did the first race vest, we did the first, you know, um, bladder pack, all that stuff. Um, and, and it was mainly to get us between aid stations or between field points or between watering holes. You know, in the early days, we didn't, there, there wasn't Giardia, you know, and later the filters came. And so we would just dip in the stream and it would be like to get from point A to point B. Um, we, it's going to take us between three and five hours. How much water do I need to that period of time? And, and so that's how the packs kind of evolved from smaller to larger. And even today with Ultraspire, my new company, um, we don't make anything that I can't run in. You know, it's just our biggest pack is 25 liters. It carries a two liter hydration. People use it for fast packing now. They're setting, you know, records, you know, self-supported records like on the John Muir Trail and stuff like that in this pack. Um, and, and, if, and if it's too big to run in, then we're not going to make it. There's a lot of good companies out there that make good backpacks. And so that's kind of the premise that we've set. And so when, when it comes to selecting your gear, it's kind of like um, how much water do you need you know, and you do a sweat rate test or whatever to know, you know, according to the temperature end to see how much fluid you should take in, you know, per given period of time. And then, so the first question is water. And then the second question is food. And then the third question is any other gear that you need to carry with you, you know, to get you through the adventure. And, and your question about minimalism, um, things have gone very minimal, more so in the U S um, than, than in European and Asian, a, Asian cultures, and partially because um, the, the whole race culture in general has evolved from the early days of 100-mile races where the age stations were 20 miles apart to now the racers almost expect it, and I can't figure out why, but they almost expect an aid station every five miles. And if they don't have it, they kind of fall apart. And, and so they've kind of... Um, the, the races have evolved. And I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing a little bit more push to where, you know, people are going into the ultras, but then they're transitioning from ultras into FKTs or FKMEs where you just, you don't care about the overall time. You just care about your personal time where you're, you're kind of responsible for yourself. Um, because I, I was crewing somebody once in a really big race and, and, I was driving like a madman trying to get to the next aid station and I missed it by like 10 minutes and they came in and they didn't have their exact food and the exact time at the right time. And so they dropped out of the race and it's like, seriously, you know, I mean, you can't adapt and you know, that that's one thing as a racer, you have to be able to adapt, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and so I think that people have become a little soft and uh, yeah. in, oh, in, in the new generation coming yeah, huh? and I was just gonna say, I, I think in in triathlon we've seen, um, it it go from a kind of almost looked at as an extreme sport of, wow, this is crazy. You got to be a really amazing athlete to do this. To now, you know, everyone's encouraged to do it and to go and to just try to finish and to be more at a beginner level. And I'm I'm sensing maybe that same thing is coming into ultras as well. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, not everybody that you know, was like you where they've been doing it since they were a kid and they're very, very talented. And so probably a lot of those people maybe feel like they need an aid station every five miles. And some of it might be that they're just slow. Like there's a lot of slow people doing it now. And it's like an amazing, it's an amazing thing for sure. Um, to yeah. have like everyone involved, but it totally changes the way that the sport looks. 
it does totally change the way the sport looks. And I think what happens also is, is people get to the point where they, they've done it, you know, and as soon as they've done a hundred mile or whatever, now they're starting to do these 200 mile races. It's like, wow, that's, that's insane. But um, they're, they're continually pushing the envelope further and further. Um, but in, in the early days, you know, I, I really liked, and I'll tell you a story. Um, this is another FKT that I held for a while. I, I don't even know it's some pro bike racer hold, holds it now, but I also spent a lot of time on the mountain bike and, and um, there was this trail that I would do every single year, at least twice. It's called the White Rim Trail in Moab. Um, it's 103 mile loop and 18 miles is on pavement and the rest of it is either on dirt road. Uh, it, it, rest of it is on dirt road, but some of it's really technical dirt road and really rough dirt road. And so um, I, I would go do it every year. And it used to be that people would do it in three days. You know, they would camp out in their truck and ride 33 miles one day on a mountain bike, then the 33 the next day, and then they'd finish it off. Um, so we always wanted to just do it in a day, which we've done many, many, many times. And so there was a point where, um, and this is how we, I first developed the idea of a gel flask. Um, and so that's why I'm telling this story, but I, I wanted to set an FKT on the White Rim Trail. And, and the, your, your people will probably think I'm crazy. I, I don't know if people have done this before, but um, so I, I calculated how much water I would need, um, solo self-supported, um, no bike crew, no anything, 103 miles. Um, I needed, you know, basically two gallons of water. <laughs> and so I, I built a pack specifically for it to carry two bladders. And then I needed 27 packets of gel. And, and so I, I created pockets on my pack so that I could carry the gel. And, and I was, when I was doing these things, I was really critical where, and I think it's important, but I was really critical of my nutrition and my hydration. And so I would set a timer on my watch to, to um, be, you know, every 20 minutes. And every 20 minutes I was taking a packet of gel in and then I was drinking a little bit of water. And, and, I, and then I also knew what my, you know, my threshold was, my anaerobic threshold, and I knew where I needed to keep my heart rate in order to not bonk, you know, over 103 miles on a mountain bike. And so I'm, I'm cruising along and I come up to this first climb and I knew that I needed to keep my heart rate below 140. And as soon as I went above 140, I was going into danger zone and turn, burning my sugars a little bit too fast and I was eventually going to bonk. And again, solo self-supported in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, and I pushed it a little too hard. I'm like, oh, I'm feeling so good. I can, I can handle 150. I can handle 160 on this climb. And so I'm pushing it up this climb. My time is looking phenomenal. This was about the 25 mile mark. And, and then I got to a place in the middle of it, um, in the middle of this called Murphy's Hogback, which is about 2,500 feet vertical climbing granny gear climbing um and it's just this windy jeep road and about halfway at murphy's bog hogback i cramped so bad i fell off my bike in the middle oh. of nowhere and then i and then i thought back and i thought oh crap man i was i was pushing it too hard i'm burning my sugars a lot faster than i'm putting them in and i'm i basically bonked and so i said okay let's let's analyze it here so i just stopped i took in two packets of gel 
Um, and then I says, I'm going to switch to 15 minute intervals instead of 20 minute intervals. And, and after about 20 or 30 minutes, I started, I was walking and then I got back on my bike. I made it to the top of Murphy's Hogback pretty much just walking. And I'd lost like 30 minutes of time. And I'm like, Oh man, I'm not going to set the record. And, and so when I got to the top, I started feeling better. And then I just kept on that 15 minute interval for the rest of the time. And then the last climb um, is, is a climb called um, the Schaefer Trail. And it's another 2,500 feet over five miles of just zigzaggy dirt road to the top of this. And I was able to finish, and that's right near within three miles of the finish at Murphy's Hogback. And I was able to push because I took care of myself and I, and I got my sugars back under control. Um, and I, I was doing other things too. I do Tums and I do some salt and stuff like that to keep everything in line. But I was able to peg my heart rate at almost 180 the rest of the way out. Wow. And, and I finished and, and I, and I set a record. It was eight hours and 12 minutes. Um, but and it's set, since gone a lot faster than that. But the people that have done it since then have also done it supported too, where they have a sag wagon that hands them water bottles out of the window and stuff like that. So it's it's one of those things that you know it's just schematics, really. Huh? I said they're probably also wearing your vests now. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be. But anyway, to, back to my gel story. So what I did with my packs of gel. So I finished this eight hours and 12 minutes. Yay. You know, I'm the only one in the parking lot. And I'm like, man, that was hard, you know, and I'm, I'm glad I made it. And I'm glad I didn't have to get rescued in the middle of this. And, and so I took my pack off and, you know, I judged my water really well. I, I judged my gels. I had to carry some extras, but I had literally, so I didn't litter. I had stuffed 30 empty wrappers of gel down my cycling jersey. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so you take your pack out and then you dump it out on the pavement. It's like, whoa, that's a lot of gel. And and then I realized, you know, there's got to be a better way. And that's when we started making the little bottles, you know, that that will hold five or six packets of gel. And, and then you don't have to worry about littering and stuff like that. So it was right after that that we developed a gel bottle. <laughs> and we did the first gel bottle right after that as well, too. So it's kind of fun stories. And I think that ultimately for me, from a business standpoint and from, you know, company standpoint, they've always been based on needs of the athletes and a lot of times event-based. Um, so like Magdalena Boulay, you know, Olympic marathoner, also a great runner. She came to me a few years ago. She wanted to run the marathon day sob. She needed a pack that fit her. She needed to carry X, Y, and Z. You know, what can you do for me? And so we made a pack for her specifically for the race. Um, and that's how it's kind of gone over the years. It's usually an event-based or an athlete-based need, according to always starting with hydration and then with nutrition. And then after you add the hydration and the nutrition in there, then what else do you need to carry? For example, in Europe right now, a lot of the ultra running and the trail running in particular, they have mandatory gear lists. And they don't have those in most races in the U.S., um, they'll just kind of let you go with whatever you think you can get away with. But in, in, in Europe, a lot of times you have to wear a waterproof, bring a waterproof coat, a cell phone, waterproof pants, an extra headlamp and things like that. And so you need a pack that will carry that stuff efficiently. And it's always been things at your fingertips, fluids and nutrition, and other things you might want to get at quickly, hat, gloves, you know, a light, things Second like goals. that. And then the, 
trekking poles. Yeah, exactly. Good thinking. Trekking poles that you want to get out on the go without having to take your pack off. And then the other things you just kind of stash away deeper in that you may or may not need. Um, and so kind of our packs are kind of developed around events and races and, and distances. We'll say, okay, how long do you go between water stops? If you go, if you go an hour, then you can get away with a one bottle. If you go, if you go two hours, you maybe need two bottles. If you go up to four hours, you maybe need a bladder or you need yeah. to carry multiple water bottles. And so it's kind of all based on the need of the athlete. Um, but I think there is a trend, you know, I was talking to, you know, Hayden Hawks, just one of the great ultra runners, um, the other day and, and he purposely, and I think there's some merit to this and, and, um, where he purposely doesn't carry much in his training runs to try to train himself to, to not need as much water, to not need as much calories. And even before the whole keto diet came in, I used to do this myself where I would go out and I would do you know, eight hours, whether it's trail running or whether it's mountain biking for me or, or doing a mountain run. And I would do it with no food and, and, and I would purposely bonk. And I would know, I would know like when I bonked on Murphy's hogback, I could not even get my heart rate over a hundred beats per minute because I was totally in the fat burn zone. You know, I just, I was, had no calories left, you know, you're literally hitting the wall. So I would purposely go out and do that in training sessions to teach my body to be more efficient at burning fat. And it was kind of pre keto diet scenario to try to, you know, put you in a state of ketosis so that you're able to do that. And we, we were doing that early, early on oh, man. Um, to I try remember, to teach uh, our bodies to do that. A couple of years ago, I had a coach who would make me do like six hour bike rides with water only spinning above 90 RPM, like low effort. And those were like, there you go more than anything. I, I mean, it's how you feel at the end of a, a long race that you feel that way. So you, you put yourself in that zone of yeah, absolute yeah. hate and <laughs> then you come out of it somehow. Well, and the theory behind it is, you know, and, and I totally agree with it all. The theory behind it is when you put, well, first of all, you're going to feel what it feels like to bonk you know, oh, yeah. so bad and then realizing that you've got to get through it. And then, and then it also teaches your body to be more efficient at doing it. So that when you do, then, then when you're trying to output higher, like when you want to get your heart rate up to 180, the last five miles or whatever, you know, you've got some reserves there because you've been burning a higher percentage of fat along the way. So that you've reserved your glycogen and your, your sugar stores, I call them um, for later in the race. And I think those really have a lot of merit, but they are painful. Oh, they're painful. It's like, yeah. I just want to eat something. Yep. There's never a worse time in my life at the, at the last hour of those rides. Cause usually four or five hours is not that bad, but once you crest that, you know, total glycogen depletion, and then you're also starving. That's those two combined are terrible. I wouldn't right. run at that point. And, I wouldn't run and, be and, around myself at that point with the <laughs> no eating. It's five or six hours. It'd be just terrible. Well, and I think, and then the other thing that happens to you, like, like when, um, for me, you know, I've never really had a problem throwing up and stuff like that. Like a lot of people do when you get the sweet stomach, but ultimately what it is, is the gels are engineered so well to enter your system so quickly. What happens is the acid levels come up really high in your stomach. And as those come up really high, then you're going to get this sick stomach and some people throw up. Yeah. But, you know, again, early on when we were doing the white rim and stuff, 
we would always just eat a couple of Tums every couple of hours and that would keep our acid level down in our stomach so we could keep eating gels for such a long time. So we kind of created these little things. And then we'd go to McDonald's and get those little packets of salt before they even had electrolyte tablets. Oh my God. And, and we would just, we would just crack one of those things of salt and just lick salt. And then, cause two things, um, Tums helps, but then two other things help settle your stomach and it's salt and fat. And, and, and so, Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah actually coke does too yeah we like coke too but anyway just trying to keep your stomach open so you can still absorb the the sugar so you can keep going at the high output level yeah i think i think what you all have done within the last you know 20 30 years of evolving our sport and pushing the limits and you know allowing us to have more access to such awesome trails and environments i mean that's what you've been like the absolute biggest part of it i think You've just got to be walking around sometimes like, hey, I was, the, I was the first to do that. I was the first to start that. Like, that has to be <laughs> such a cool, like, epiphany sometimes. Uh, so, so that hard work is just yeah. so appreciated by our generation. Oh, that's, that's good. That makes me happy. You know, I, we'll see what happens one day. At this point, it's like, I, I guess the thing that I smile about now is, is um, all of my kids are involved in the sport and, and ultimately triathlon, ultra running, mountain running, rock climbing. I consider them outdoor sports. They're all lifetime sports. Yes. And that's the beauty of it. You know, that, that is the pure beauty of it is because and I told my wife, I was just until I can't do it anymore. And I don't care if I'm 85 years old, you know, and that's, that's what it is. That's the beauty of the sports that we're involved in is they're good for our health. They're good for our mental capacity. And, and, and they're something that we can do the rest of our lives so that, that we'll have a happier life too, more fulfilled life. So that's, what's cool about it. Well, so passing I, that on to younger generations, like I have five grandbabies now um, wow. and, and it's pretty exciting you know, that they're all, in fact, that's what I do now on Sunday afternoons. I, I'm not making, I'm, I'm not working on Sunday afternoons. I come down and I make my, all my kids and grandkids their first backpack. So. Oh, nice. that's fantastic. Um, so Bryce, before yeah, we, fun. you know, we've taken a lot of your time today, so we appreciate that. But before we let you go, how come, I mean, you, you have a warehouse and your headquarters right down the street from me. Like why, why St. George, Utah? Where's, why did you land there? Uh, it's kind of a long story, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it brief because I can get pretty long-winded when I'm talking about stuff like this. But um, my first company, Ultimate Direction, I sold in, um, in 2002. And um, then for a while, I worked for Nathan. So really, I've created Ultimate Direction and Nathan, which are two of my biggest competitors right now at the current company, Ultraspire. Um, but... When I sold Ultimate Direction, I had a three-year contract with them, um, and they their headquarters was in um, Oakland, California, the company who bought it, and I had an option to either move to their warehouse in St. George for three years or move to Oakland, California, and I'm, I, I like small towns, and so I moved to St. George, fell in love with it, um, and that's where you know, I decided that it was, it was a good place to run a business. And so after my contract was up, I actually started a camera bag company. And then I worked for Nathan for like seven years and kind of brought them out of the, 
you know, uh, they were a tiny little company and now they're, you know, one of the larger hydration companies out there. And then, um, and then I decided to start again with Ultraspire. So because that brought me to St. George, the thing I liked about St. George was I like to ski and skiing within an hour and a half, but I don't like to live in the snow. Okay. And I love rock climbing. There's 30 places to climb, rock climb in St. George. I love trail running. There's mega trail running. I love mountain biking. There's mega mountain biking. And so I, I, I'm living here for location. Um, and then just the amount, the, the, the good people that are here, the good employees that we have. It's right on I-15, a great distribution center. It's one day from the L.A. port to bring stuff in. Um, and so St. George was just a great location for personal lifestyle and then also for business. Well, that's exactly why I decided to, uh, it was my landing spot as well. So I think we're on the level head and I can't wait to bug you enough to eventually go out in a trail run with you just so I can like experience what it's really like. And what, before well, I do want, want your opinion, what do you feel about, or how do you feel about trekking poles? Do you feel like this is a, it's like a cheating way of climbing? <laughs> Some athletes have said, have scoffed at it. No, I, it's very heavily used in Europe. Um, and w especially with me, with my cross country skiing background, I, I use trekking poles quite often, like on uh, going up Delano peak on the Tusha race that you were just in. Um, oh, yeah. it makes a huge difference. You have to know how to use them. Right. Um, most people don't. Um, I really, really, really like them for the uphills. I like them for the downhills too, because you can kind of, um, it soften the knees and the blows, especially if I'm wearing a bigger pack. I really like them on the downhills where I don't use them as much is when the trails are really narrow and very wooded and very bushy because they get tangled up in the bushes a lot. And that drives me crazy. Um, so if you're, if you're climbing a steep slope and the trails wide enough, then, then I, I, think it helps you a lot in the uphills now whether i think it's fair or not i think that it totally is fair game um most most areas in the world where trail running is much bigger than the u.s all the european countries trekking poles are used really really heavily um i if i'm doing um technical mountain running where i have to run into the peak and then i i'm, I'm actually rock climbing like i've been doing north guardian angel and zion a lot lately and the last uh, thousand feet vertical is technical climbing. I don't carry poles with me. I just run in in the trail and then I, um, and then I, you can't, I mean, obviously they're not good at all when you have to use your hands. Um, but if, if it's a steep climb and it's a wide trail or it's an open field or something, then trail, then poles work really, really well, especially as a triathlete where you've got some good upper body strength, it's going to be good for you. That's but what I felt. They, they were, yeah. really helpful and i learned a lot from watching yeah. people watching people while i was racing because it, it during that tusher race i was like i was cover around position five to eight for a while and i was going with some of these guys and they were just yeah. impeccable pole pole trekkers uphill while carrying like almost run yeah. walk speed with the hips so there's a lot of technique that i would definitely yes. have to yeah. fine tune yeah, the technique is is really really important, and even the way you put the the hand straps on and stuff like that. I'm using some Lakey poles now that I really like because they have more of a cross country ski style grip on them, 
where you don't have to grip the pole at all. It just kind of hangs off your wrist. And because ultimately you have to try to keep yourself, and I learned this from ski racing, you have to keep your hands really relaxed and just, and, and not tensing up your forearms and then just kind of making sure. And then you hang on the poles. So use your body weight and then you do a little compression with your stomach, almost like a crunch. And then you kind of push off with your, your triceps as you would push off swimming or whatever, just in the last little part of the stroke. And, and, it really, when you get the technique down, you watch them in Europe, but they also do a lot of schema racing. They're so good with poles that, that they get a lot of propulsion. And, and ski racing, um, we used to say that it was 30% arms and 70% legs. And so I think that's kind of just been adopted into the European style of racing as well, too. And people that are good at it, there's a lot of people, though, that don't know how to do it. They just kind of, they're just kind of there as an extra appendage. They're not using it as... Um, propulsion for propulsion and if you don't know if you don't have the pole length right if you don't know how to hang off the poles you don't have the grips right um then then they are just kind of appendages which which makes it so you don't fall down as much but it's not giving you the upward propulsion like you can really get out of them yeah that makes total sense and i've seen that with my own eyes and you've watched downhill moguls like those guys are just launching from mogul to mogul with their whole body so it makes sense there's definitely yeah yeah. A lot to learn for me as a future <laughs> ultra marathoner or ultra runner or canyon extraordinaire runner, whatever. Well, one well the beauty of you triathletes though, is you just, you're so fit. Your overall body is fit. And so you can, you could transition fairly easily and, you know, just great athletes and you're used to going a long time too. So there you it, go, Jackson. I, I hope we get some more traffic. There you oh, go. Give me 15 years and we'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bryce, um, thank you for all that you've done for our sport collectively. I mean, endurance sports in general have benefited from hydration packs and your, you know, your drive to push people to do new levels with FKTs. And, you know, that started off as, you know, pe pencil of paper, I'm sure. And now look at Strava. There's just like, it's taken yeah. on levels. So, um, you know, you've been there yeah, since Yeah, it's really cool. Um, yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's a fun, a fun industry to be in, you know, and like I said, yeah, I'm one of the few people, um, you know, Nick, you, you're doing this, but where your passion and your career are one, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's just like, it, that's rare, you know, so it's, it's just like, I've been very fortunate because I've been doing this, you know, for a lot of years now and, and I'm excited to come to work every single day, but it's because it's like, I'm working with athletes like you guys, and it's like, first question out of my mouth, what are you trying to do? What can we try to solve? What problem do we need to figure out? You know, how do we need to get you the water and nutrition, you know? And, and I love it. You know, I, 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 I finished another pack off last week, a new vest I'm working on, which is so cool. And it's just super minimalist. And yeah, it's I think I saw really, the fabric really when I came so, in that one day. Probably, yeah. <laughs> so you're right, you did. I, so, I have got a, anyway, I do have yeah. a couple concepts. I wanted to swing by your, uh, your head one day when okay. I do stop in the okay. office, but, but that'll be another chat, but, uh, that sounds awesome. but until okay. then we'll get out, we'll get out of your hair and we'll check in with you in you know, a couple months time and we'll see how things are going. Um, obviously I know okay. you guys are doing really well, even during the pandemic, I, I chatted with you, but we'll, uh, we'll look forward to running with you in person and Jackson, you got any final questions or thoughts yes. for Bryce before we say goodbye? Oh man, I just, you know, 
you make it sound very interesting and uh i i i don't want to get too too much more involved or else i might i might be tempted to switch the old career path at some point so (laughs) (laughs) it's cool though and and uh yeah i'm interested to hear nick's ideas too for some of these different packs and um he 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 says the world of all the all the gear that you provide him so oh cool uh, he thinks it's really awesome so someday he'll get me out in the mountains with him out there in the saint george area oh good that'd be awesome you can come by the office cool all right bryce well thanks again and guys thank you thanks for your story and we'll talk to you real soon sounds great thank you cheers Thank you, Bryce, for joining us here on the Real Triathlon Podcast. Although it is not the real ultra running podcast, we really appreciated you taking the time out of your day and spending it with us. For those listening, I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts because we're on them all. And until next time, peace out. Flying through the sky in my parachute Dancing on the couch like I'm Tommy Cruise On a one-man mission trying to see it through